the main difference between book and film for me when it comes to the games themselves is the limited POV of Katniss in the book makes it so everything that's going on outside of it, she's guessing at what's going on. She's guessing why they're making these changes. The gamekeepers we hear about, we hear about the sponsors, all of this she's interpreting, but we're locked in her perspective. So we only see the the end result of these actions. And so there, it leaves enough room for us to fill in a lot of details. And like my imagination is going wild, figuring out like how these things come to be, why they're making certain decisions. In the movie, we are shown all of this. Welcome, friends, to episode 292 of the Ink the Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And I'm writer Luke Elliott. And this week, we discuss Gary Ross's 2012 film, The Hunger Games. Okay, so I'm feeling very thankful. You know, I hope everyone had a good Thanksgiving if you if you do celebrate that. We're here. We're here at the Hunger Games film. Yeah, I volunteer as tribute. I don't know about <laughs> yeah. you. I guess. I guess I will. I don't know what, what I'm fighting for, but I guess my life. <laughs> I guess my life. That's good enough. But this this movie reminds me of a very specific time. Interesting time for YA. Twilight had done very well, obviously Harry Potter. And this movie comes at a time where like they had this smaller budget that they had to pull this off with but then they have these massive names in some of these roles and it's got like a lot of that momentum from YA going for it that mm. I think this this hit it squarely and perfectly and I was reading that this is like the 21st most successful franchise of all time yeah if you can believe that well, speaking of that new movie the ballad of songbirds and snakes i think it's called yeah um it's doing great apparently it's it's killing it it's another like it's just quietly this massive franchise and c- clearly still has legs um i was yeah. speaking to someone recently who went and saw it and enjoyed it so it's like it's it, it's still got fans out there who are who are going to see these things i think you leave something like this alone for 10 years and there's like a certain interest that could peak mm. up again also yeah. um you know, I haven't seen it. I don't know much about it either. So I'd be interested yeah, to see either. where it goes. But I did find myself with this movie being like, I could watch a couple more of these movies. You know, I kind of want to yeah, continue ca- the story. Yeah, uh, same. I kind of want to finish out the trilogy now. It kind of reignited a little bit of interest just to be just out of curiosity. Where, where does this thing end up going? Uh, Snow, who is a lot more president. Uh, sorry, President Snow, who is a lot more present in this <laughs> version of the uh, of the Hunger Games. So in the book. I thought it was notable that that he wasn't very present. He showed up a couple times to say a few things, but really didn't have much time on the page. Whereas uh, I think projecting ahead and knowing they were going to make multiple movies, they smartly show more of him, show a lot of interactions that we're not privy to in the book. Um, and that's one of the big changes that we can highlight from the beginning is is how much more of that other stuff we get, how much more outside of just Katniss's perspective that we do get in this version. Yeah, it's a, like a major factor. President Snow as Donald Sutherland, right? If you get mm-hmm. Donald Sutherland in a role like this, you, you want to show him more. I read that Gary Ross actually added in multiple scenes, and he worked alongside Billy Ray and also Suzanne Collins to to craft this screenplay. And apparently Donald Sutherland like pitched him on the idea of playing this um, President Snow role. I guess mm-hmm. he felt there was something like Shakespearean about it, something that was speaking to him as, as sort of this villainous uh character with maybe some a a darker past 
Um, something that isn't it interesting that. that the prequel is all about him, like a young him is the is the protagonist of this prequel. Again, I don't remember books two and three, or or really the movies. I I do remember the second movie. I remember thinking yeah. the second movie was actually pretty great. Yeah. Um, but not knowing where it goes, why why would someone want to see a prequel about this character? Because he seems so know. detestable. Yeah, he's pretty bad in this movie. I mean, you know, no, he's like, have you seen those underdogs? You wouldn't root for him if you did. You know, like he's, he, he says some pretty shitty stuff about about people. <laughs> Give him a little bit of hope, but not too much. Yeah, you know, very like stuff. evil co- corporate overlord. Like, And like, yeah. I, I'm thinking I would love to see a prequel about Haymitch. Now, maybe he shows up in some fashion, but like, I want to see Haymitch in the games, not not Snow. Um, but maybe that's just me. I don't know. I, he's he's probably my favorite character. Uh, again, like I loved him in the book, but he, you know, he's great here yeah. in the movie too. And Woody Harrelson in the role. I guess Woody yeah. Harrelson had to be convinced to play this role. He didn't want it. He kept turning it away. And then apparently, Gary Ross reports that Woody Harrelson always thanks him for for force to for getting him into the role because it was just kind of one of those super iconic roles. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I mean, Woody Harrelson has some iconic roles, but I'm sure this is a good one for for uh, broad uh, appeal and and getting recognized and probably got more roles because of this one. You know what I mean? Like he's yeah. a likable guy, whereas I think Woody Harrelson often plays I don't know morally gray characters at best, if not villainous. Um, hey, he's he, he does have like a goofy side where sometimes he's he's more likable, but um, I don't know. I I just think he really kills this role. Um, we got we got the Tooch shows up here, Stanley Tucci. God, I love hair. Stanley Tucci. I, so charismatic. I, in this I role. appreciate Stanley Tucci as a human being. I want to be like Stanley Tucci. <laughs> I just he's so fascinating. He's so magnetic. Like yeah. uh, this role again is like of course like way over the top, and the motivation of these characters in the capital is really messed up when you when you start extrapolating and thinking about it as we have. Um, but you but think he, about he like, plays it with a little bit of like. He kind of wrecking like I don't know. There's and, and there's the a little bit of this in the in book it. where yeah. like he genuinely tries to help them out in the book and tries to make them more appealing because he knows that that will help them in the games. Right. There's a little bit of that sorrow, and, and that's one of the more fascinating things that Suzanne Collins did. And I'll give her credit, and then it's translated here on screen. Is have characters like Cesar Flickerman, which is who uh, Tucci plays, and um, of course Effie Trinket, yeah. and like both of these characters could have been very flat villains type characters who are just completely out of touch. Um, but both of them have redeeming qualities to them. And talk about iconic, like Elizabeth, Elizabeth Banks as Effie Trinket is like yes. been memed all over the place. She, it's such an iconic role in the costuming and everything about Great that. Costuming. She owns it. I, I wanted to, to yeah. say like, there is a little bit of the like now pretty cliche um, evil empire, you know, stormtrooper like characters, and then like everybody's in drab clothes, like they're not allowed to have any color in, in the in all the districts. Um, it's a little cliche at this point, sure. Um, I'm okay with a little bit of cliche when it comes to YA because I feel like you're you're appealing to a young audience who probably isn't as overexposed as adults are to the same stuff. So you have to like calibrate for that. Like it's probably not as cliche to them. All that being said, when she walks out in that bright pink. Uh, pinkish purple or whatever it is like and with that you know with her hair and her makeup and like that that diff that dissonance between everything else you're seeing and her just makes it stand out all the more right i was getting a lot more like third reich vibes from the like the era that they're trying to depict in some ways obviously the tech doesn't match that like the yeah. capital's tech is so far advanced but like 
the microphone, the way the banners are there, like yes. red, uh, yeah. like the symbols are all there. And it just does look very like totalitarian well, fascism, right? kind of right. fascist. It, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's it's this projection of fascism. And, and one of the things I, I wanted to get into about this that I, I find kind of interesting about the way this fascist society is portrayed is how at its core, there is also the elites in the city who are out of touch with the common man. You know, the people who just like, benefit from the blue collar labor labor and are just sitting there in their ivory towers um there's a little bit of that going on which is usually pretty counter to um to what you see in in sort of anti-fascist dystopian fiction that's about taking down fascism um it, it's interesting that they tie the fascism to that here and it, it muddies the waters a bit for me, right? I, I don't know how to feel about it personally. Um, but I mean, that's all going to depend on how people feel. Like, of course, there that is like a valid criticism you could point at people where often they are very disconnected from the work being done to, that provides a lot of the, the value to them. But there's like all kinds of, you know, different sides to that argument. Um, and it's just interesting here to see it played up. And I do think that created a broad appeal to where even middle America, you know what I mean? Like a lot of people can watch Hunger Games and feel represented and feel like it's it's something that interests them and they're not being um they're not the ones who are the target here um and then people like who you know the big city elites can look at it and be like yeah these people are ridiculous it's it's gone way too far right like they're they're so out of touch like that's not that doesn't represent anything that i'm familiar with and this isn't this is when the rebellion fails right like they've squashed the rebellion and that's like led to them seeing everyone in the districts a certain way and then it's like yeah. propaganda and everything else was yeah, preached that's the that thing because like we're told that there was a rebellion and that the government squashed the rebellion and then the hunger games were begun as some i don't know they don't even really get into details of like how this is supposed to be helpful in any way but now all of a sudden we're doing the hunger games no i think it's they state that it's to to remind everyone to not rebel basically they to not say rebel? That, yeah interesting they say that like this is the sacrifice that we make to say like remember how bad it can be um and they're trying to keep us in check yeah. it's like normally this would be something that was done like behind closed doors and there'd be like you know all this smoke and mirrors but instead it's like they're literally telling the citizens like we're gonna kill these people as an example and if you rebel again it'll be worse than this yeah but it's some sort of appeasement too snow talks about this like how you have to give them a little bit of hope like giving ma making there be a victor is important versus just executing 24 people exactly um, yeah. even though it serves a similar purpose um there is something sort of insidious about that i like that but but my point was i feel like all that story is shrouded in propaganda so I assume with some of this prequel stuff, maybe we're getting a little more clarity on what actually happened in this rebellion. Because it, it, if when I when I hear that, I'm like, there's no way that's how it actually went down. That's what the story is now. Exactly. You know what I mean? By the yeah. victors, they're telling the history. They're writing their own narrative of how everything's going, and they they yeah. want everybody to think they don't let the districts communicate because they want to keep them separate. But also, like maybe it's better in another district, and that they keep all of this unknown there so that they can maintain that that level of control so i wanted to ask you what did you think about the overall look of this movie i'm going to jump straight into cinematography because like the look i think overall is pretty slick it looks pretty pretty uh well established i think it's shot well and professionally but i was shocked and kind of struck by just how handheld shaky cam is like a thing that people say now and it doesn't mean what i think a lot of people thinks it means 
this is handheld and it's meant to be it bring con like a kinetic energy to the scene and a sense of urgency and it's it's yeah. moving right like it's 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 reflecting that in the camera work and i think it's overdone i'll just go ahead it, it, there's it too is much overdone it. it is overdone and then in addition to that there is so much use of close-up in this and i think it's because if you go close up and you're shallow the sets and the backgrounds can kind of fall out of focus and, and yeah. it's not as important. Now, I, I didn't realize that apparently you said that they had like kind of a lower budget. I didn't know that. Yeah. So I was I was a little curious why we were it seemed like they were trying not to show their back their backgrounds. There was a, is, I think there was a, a little shame bit because, kind of, yeah. you know, a movie like Children of Men, where the backgrounds tell so much of the world building. And it tells so many other interesting stories going on. It's not really fair to compare this movie to Children of Men, very different kind of movie. But my point was just like, we're flying by all these moments where I'm getting to see a little bit of the world and I want contextual world building. I want the setting to tell me something about the story. I love that you're yeah. saying this and you picked up on this too, because that's that's what I felt anytime they were showing things in the scene, I still didn't feel like it was well realized because we didn't get enough wides and enough establishing yep. things. And even the medium shot, it's so much of like how intense a lot of these super there were extreme close-ups and they're handheld and they're doing yeah. it in conversation with people and it's bringing a little a level of dramatics to each scene but if you overdo the close like it's there as a, an exclamation point and if you overdo it then it just feels like it's the same and it doesn't provide yeah. that there was so much close-up in this and again i think and, maybe and that honestly it doesn't serve do your with. it doesn't serve your costuming very well either if you got great costuming and you're spending all your time like an inch from someone's face, like you're not getting to see yeah. the whole ensemble very, very and much. Obviously, you want some of that. I'm not trying to say it's always bad. Of course, you want that sometimes, but it was just a little too much for my for my taste. This is fairly subjective, and in looking, this was intentional. Like Gary Ross said, the decision to go with the handheld look had a lot to do with the urgency of what was going on, and to reflect Katniss's point of view because the book is from first person, so sure. to kind of give a POV for a lot of this stuff. Um, he also mentioned that he wanted to avoid a polished static camera look at all costs since that would reduce the violence to mere entertainment and be completely contrary to the movie's intention. So he wants it to seem like so uh, dire. Everything feels dire and it feels like every moment is important. And it does give that, but I, I just felt like it was a lot. And I think this is a little subjective. Some people, I think when I first saw this movie, I didn't notice it. Yeah. Maybe it was a trend at the time. I more, think it was. More in vogue at the time. Yeah. But yeah, and, and speaking of trends, um, I, I also think there's a certain sort of blue sheen to this movie that feels very much of the like late aughts, right? Like yeah. that, and especially for YA, I don't know if, if, if it was part of an overall trend or if it's sort of, I don't know where it came in with, with Twilight. I mean, it came out around the same time, right? And this one was this, this is on the after? heels of Twilight, yeah. This yeah. is like nearing the end of Twilight. Now, it's not as blue as Twilight. But there's a, a still a bit of that, like everything's so cool, and like it's it's um, c clearly been color corrected in a in that cool direction, that like cooler tones direction. It's funny that you say that though, because I felt like when you shoot in log, you get like a really undersaturated grayish look. Yeah, and I felt like this w in some cases, and this wasn't. I think most of what we're seeing is like when we were in the districts, we were seeing undersaturated, very muted colors, and that kind of stuff that you were talking about, definitely blue leaning, but it felt like it was like no, less you're color right. corrected. I, I think I, uh, my, my eye interprets less color sometimes as cooler color, yeah, because it's that blue bluish gray. Yeah. Um, but maybe you're right, maybe it was more desaturation, but certain colors did pop. It was just like, like the, the greens all were like an emerald green. They all had like a blue tinge to them. There yeah. wasn't a lot of warmth in any anything. And I think that was by design. They wanted to make a feel like a cold world. 
I um, think that once they get into the games, it's different, though, right? Did you feel that as much in the well, games like the, as well? No, well, because I was going to say even the blood looked like super dark, almost black, because yeah. of the the way the color was either desaturated or or pulled towards that cooler tone. Like nothing was very warm. And that I wonder if they did intentionally for like ratings reasons, because I know they really wanted to stick to that PG thirteen with this yeah. being violent and gory and some what gore was in the book. Is, is lighter red gonna like get you? A, I don't know. A different rating is that possibly. how it works? <laughs> I don't know. Possibly. I think of like how red Tarantino's blood is and yeah, like how true. you know. Yeah, but his how, is like over the top. There's so on much purpose. of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, as far as the look, I think I think I realized that they were going for a certain thing in the districts, which did work for me. Um, and then they transitioned it to a different sort of look during the games, which makes sense to me. Like tell tell yeah. each place, make it distinct in its own way. But yeah, it does. I, it does remind me of those like early 2010s uh, yeah. time period for sure. It felt very of a time in, in, in its look and feel. So Gary Ross is an American filmmaker. He's best known for writing and directing the fantasy comedy drama film Pleasantville in 1998, the sports oh. drama film Seabiscuit in 2003, and then The Hunger Games in 2012. I have not seen Seabiscuit, but I believe I saw Pleasantville. Was that the one where everything was black and white and then it transitions to color? Yes. Um, and then he also worked on Ocean's 8, which was the um, female-led cast of, oh, yeah, of okay. heist version. I, I think that, that was 2018. He's been nominated for four Academy Awards, and uh, he's had an interesting life. I was reading he worked as a fisherman. He worked on Ted Kennedy's 1980 presidential campaign, consulted oh, on wow. both Michael Dukakis, 1988 presidential campaign, and Bill Clinton's presidential campaigns. Um, he then wrote a novel, all before being hired to write screenplays for Paramount Pictures. Okay, cool. So Big was his first produced screenplay with Tom Hanks. It led to an Academy Award nomination and a Writers Guild of America Award. He then wrote and directed Pleasantville, and in 2003, he directed and produced Seabiscuit based on, actually based on a novel, so it's something we could cover at some point, Seabiscuit and American Legend. Interesting. Is that a novel? Like, I thought that was a true story for some reason, but I think it. I think it is. So it'd be novel, you know, novelized, novelization true story of it, I guess. kind I of thing. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Uh, that film earned earned seventy award nominations. So yeah, that was around two thousand three, and then a few years would go by, and then he uh, hears about this possible adaptation of Suzanne Collins' Hunger Games trilogy, mm -hmm. um, and he saw his kids were reading it. Decided to read it himself, read it in one sitting, which we noted last week that it yeah. is very much a book that you can do that with. Totally. And uh, he was like, I got to I got to try to uh, adapt this. So he, he got in touch with his agent. They got in touch with the uh, producer who had the, the rights. And, um, you know, he just kind of lobbied for the for the to direct it. It seems like a slam dunk, man. This when you read this book, you're like, this would make a great movie. I don't know. That's how I felt reading it is like. Of course, like it's so you got the you got the whole el angle of the t of the TV show that's being made. Um, so there's like a clear way to do this. Like there are difficulties around this dystopian world. Don't get me wrong, um, but there's just so much so much there that you're like, yeah, this this is made for for film. And a lot of commentaries being made, I think, that are relevant for that time period. And it's a bestseller, right? Like it's already yeah, a bestseller. Course, it's gonna yeah. have that built-in audience. And then I think he delivered a film that. You know, I think we've already addressed some of the things that didn't necessarily hold up, but he delivered a film that I can see people going back to for decades and for a long time continuing to talk about. And it set up well enough a possible trilogy, which I do think improves into the next movie. And then beyond that, I'm not I can't say. And I will also say that he doesn't come back. He doesn't direct any more of these films. Oh, interesting. I did not know that. But now, yeah. now is he back for the new one? No. So there's 
Another filmmaker named Francis Lawrence, who comes in and directs Catching Fire, Mockingjay Parts 1 and 2, and he's actually 10 years, about 10 years on, now come back and directed the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Wow, that's interesting. So you have a director change, and then that that new director stays on for the rest of the franchise. Yeah. Um, That is kind of a fascinating move to make and yeah just for the record like the proof is 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 already there like this movie is a huge success it did great it is it is a cultural touchstone now for people like everybody knows hunger games and a large part of that goes to the success of this movie so yeah I'm, i might be being a little bit critical at times um but you know obviously what a, what an achievement yeah i totally agree and i found myself enjoying this i watched it with my fiance and she we had a good time with it and she was getting emotional. I was getting emotional at, at times, but uh, it really hit for her. And she was like, man, this movie, it's still got it's still got some of that emotional, emotional punch to it. Uh, yeah. There's a couple of things I'm going to touch back in on with my fiance, Caitlin, because Taylor Swift also wrote two songs for this uh, film. And uh, oh, really, they were involved in the uh, re-recording of her work once she got the rights back to to her work or i guess she didn't get the rights back she re-recorded them so she would her fans would listen to the new ones um so she would kill me if i didn't mention that i guess i'll just mention it here uh the two songs are called safe and sound which also features the civil wars i think i read that it's one of only three songs that actually appear in the movie they maybe that's during the credits or something like that yeah um supposedly taylor swift and the civil wars wrote it the song within like two hours and it was very successful she also wrote eyes open so there were two songs on the soundtrack, which was a pretty, I think I saw like Coldplay had a song in there. Like mm. these soundtracks were pretty popular as far as artists. They yeah. were able to get to make music they, for these They movies. continue to be too. I, I think it was the second movie maybe. I'm not really sure, but um, I, I'm not a big fan of a lot of those artists. I, I don't have anything against them. I'm just, there's not people that I follow closely, but there's a, a group called Churches that I do really like. And they had a big song, I think that came out for the second movie, I want to say that was on the soundtrack and I ended up really liking. So yeah, these were, these were, you know, big musical soundtracks, which is something that I, you don't, you don't see a lot anymore. These I mean, days, we t- right. Yeah. These days it's few and far between, but we did talk about in twilight. Paramore wrote a song for twilight. Yeah. Uh, so this is like a continuing So maybe it's trend. that YA thing, like, you know, young kids like music, I guess. So you get a lot I mean, of it's, popular And again, artists. it appeals to a bunch of different demographics, right? Like That's there's true. the young adults into adult, young adult, like, you know, 20s and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they kind of know, like, they had their finger on the pulse of, I think, music and the films at, at the time and who was going to see them. I, I would say that I wasn't the biggest Taylor Swift band, but as time has gone on and she's re-recorded her material, I've, I've grown... A lot of respect for her as an artist, so I'll yeah. just say say that there because uh, I know there's some passionate fan. there's some passionate fans out there. Yeah, yeah. My wife is a huge fan, and you know, I I'm I'm definitely not going to say anything negative about her. You know, I'm not that foolish. <laughs> um, no, I, I and I think she's obviously super talented. It's just not really my thing. Like I don't sure. know. I've just never really really felt like like I want to come back to it that much. Um, but every time it's on, I'm like, yeah, this is this is good music. I you know I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, so I guess that's where I'm at with, with old Taylor Swift. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Swifties don't kill me. Don't kill me. Um, uh, ser- seriously, nothing against her. But <laughs> So, uh, I wanted to circle back to something we were talking about before, which is just like the financial pressure of the time, uh, in the, on the DVD extras, Gary Ross explained, we were under tremendous financial pressure for this movie. It's under $80 million and it's a big movie. Other blockbusters cost twice and three times as much. And I think notable, this movie cost 80 million. I think it made like 650 to 700 wow. million. And then the budgets <laughs> shot up for the yeah. for the follow up movies and, and it just continued to get bigger. Um, interesting. So interesting to see a director come in, 
hit well enough with this first film to set it all up him leave and then the budgets get a lot bigger things get easier stars get paid i think i read that jennifer lawrence made five hundred thousand dollars as an actor for this movie and then the next movie she makes like 10 million so yeah that's like she became she she became a huge star after this yeah she was already a rising star but this yeah Super was she? I didn't know. I yeah. guess I don't know what she was in before this. She was in an X Men movie before this. She was oh. in Winter's Bone. She was in a couple of things. Was she in that first class? Yep. X Men movie that was before this. Okay. She was Mystique. Yeah, I think it was twenty. Yeah, she so was pretty big in that. You're right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I thought for some reason this was like the start of that of her career for some reason. Yeah. Cool. I mean, this this definitely like put her on the map in a major way. She she you know what's interesting about Jennifer Lawrence too is I was reading. She kind of came from a small town in Kentucky, and I think Josh Hutcherson did as well. And yeah. both are not, they kind of didn't want the fame in ways, especially Jennifer Lawrence. She was reluctant. She almost turned it down yeah. because she didn't want it to affect what she'd already been building as like an indie-ish career. Um, and these I'm a kind big of, fan of her personally, honestly. Like I, I, she's, I, you know, she's got an awesome personality. Like she's so different than Katniss. Katniss is like so serious. So like her whole thing is she's not super likable. She doesn't like smile for the cameras or whatever. But you ever watch Jennifer Lawrence in, in interviews? Like she's a, she's like a chaotic mess, but she's hilarious. I don't Very know, relatable. Super fun. Yeah, super relatable. relatable, down to earth, and like that's not how all, at all how Katniss is. So it is interesting that she she is able to pull this role off because it's quite different than who she really is. Goes to show like how good of an actor she is, and then it continues yeah. on. She's now Academy Award winning Jennifer yeah. Lawrence. Like she she's had a great career, and it was you know she kind of went away from the spotlight for a while, and now has yeah. come back some. So well, there was cool a lot of there was a lot of sexism and and unfortunate harassment and shit that I, I remember reading about, and 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 you know that that too often affects uh women you know in the performing arts and especially if they s get famous at a certain age and then they start to age <laughs> then all of a sudden like people turn on them and it's just it's just awful um but that's a whole another topic we could have a whole podcast about probably yeah i mean we've addressed it before many times and it's it's like um it's not balanced, right? It's it's very clearly no, skewing not. in one direction yeah. of people who are being targeted for this kind of stuff. I want to think it's getting better but uh, maybe that's some optimism in me that that isn't deserved. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to talk about a couple more people uh, while we're here. Lenny Kravitz is Cinna. Yeah, really cool to see Lenny Kravitz in that role. And Cinna is such a, like a likable character right away. Very um, aware of the situation and and like um, knows what Katniss needs in the scenario. So yeah. upon further scrutiny. It is a little strange how quickly Katniss hits it off with Cinna. Yeah. It doesn't take much at all for Cinna to all of a sudden become a trusted confidant. Mm. Now you could like read you're saying it in, for her you, her to trust him? Yes. For Katniss to be like, oh, this Cinna guy, he's, you know, totally trustworthy. He's got my best interests in my and at heart, you know, like he proves himself. Don't get me wrong. But she trusts him from the jump. Like, they immediately have this connection. And it's because he comes in and like says um i'm sorry this happened to you and it was like no one had said that yet um which is which is cool but like also that could be a play you know what i mean like she's not she's not very um um distrustful of him which i, I found a little surprising but you kind of have to move things along you could assume that there's some other time built in there where they get to know each other that we're just not seeing so i'm fine with it ultimately yeah. in a movie like this I think, like I said, he's super aware of the whole scenario and like knows what to say. And yes, there very well could have been uh, a situation where he, you know, had nefarious uh, interests or whatever and wanted to trick her. But uh, she does 
buy into it and that and that kind of rewards her eventually because that's like one of her closest connections someone she can be emotional with and and like be honest with and it's in a time yeah. when she couldn't with anybody else um so yeah yeah, oh, just a cool yeah it, it makes sense and i like his role in the movie it's good to, for her to have a character like that that she can really trust um it ju i just yeah i just thought it happened a little quickly sure. where he she was all of a sudden like you know, you're my best friend. <laughs> you're my father figure and I love you. <laughs> yeah. A lot of different people pop up that have had a continuing career. Jack Quaid plays Marvel, one yeah. of the tributes, and he's obviously like Dennis Quaid's son, but he's in the boys. He's like the main character yeah. in the boys. I was like, and... the guy from the boys kills Rue? I did not remember that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he does. Uh, he does. Pretty small role, but funny to see him like all smug in the background and cool. And I'm like, yeah. his character in the boys is like, very different than that. Uh, we have Josh Hutcherson, who we haven't talked a ton about, but how, what did you think of him in the role of PETA? I think he's good. You know, honestly, he's, he plays this role. Well, he's got, uh, he's got that affable kind of down to earth vibe to him. And I think that comes across well on screen. Um, yeah, I, I like him okay, and I, and I tend to I tend to feel bad for Peta in this story, just like we did in the book, and and I feel bad for him here, where like he's the one who truly believes all of this. I don't know how clear that is from in the movie, by the way. I think you could you could walk away from this movie thinking that Gen, that uh, Katniss genuinely felt love for him, and um, in the book, sure she might have started to develop some feelings, but it's very clear that she also is like. Uh, playing it up big time and she th assumes he is too and i just don't know that that was as clear in this movie as as it was in the book i felt a few times where i was like what would people have thought if they didn't read the book first like what did people think in these scenes like for and i know like this is kind of a bad example because uh it's like extrapolated on later but the first time we see a flash of her look at Peta and like the bread is thrown to her you have no context for what that yeah. is and again they extrapolate so it makes sense later and it connects back but there were a few times like that where I kept thinking like this is more for the people who've read the book to get that beat than it is to like really explain anything for the, the film yeah. going audience yeah let's get into the chronology because I have a couple of scenes and little questions about about stuff like that where where again I, I have little quibbles even though I overall <laughs> enjoyed the experience yeah yeah so uh here we go Pan Am is a nation divided into 12 districts ruled from the capital as punishment for a failed revolt, each district must annually choose two tributes, one boy and one girl, to fight to the death in the Hunger Games. The event is televised across the capital and all districts until only one victor remains. After her younger sister Primrose is selected, Katniss Everdeen of District 12 volunteers to take her place in the 74th Hunger Games. She and fellow tribute Peta Malark are escorted to the capital by their chaperone Effie Trinket and mentor Hamish Abernathy, the game's only living winner from District 12. Hamish stresses the importance of winning over sponsors as they can provide potentially life-saving gifts during the games. During a televised interview with Caesar Flickerman, Peta confesses his feelings for Katniss, which she initially sees as an attempt to attract sponsors. Yeah, so this movie starts strong, I think. It's got that classic text overlay where we're going to give you a little bit of world building with, with white text on a black background. Um, I was a little surprised to see it. I did not remember that, but um, I, I don't know. This kind of gives a, a throwback vibe for me. I'm okay with a little bit of front-loading, like tell us something we need to know so that we can situate ourselves. Um, it's a, it's, I feel like filmmakers don't like to do that anymore. Uh, I think but... that it can be uh, 
it can be a little rough to just exposition somebody right at the beginning. And again, yeah. this isn't like verbally told to you, but you read it. But I do. I, I'm the kind of audience that's willing to invest early. But I, I do think it's like a little it can be a little jarring. Yeah, I give a filmmaker a little bit of leeway right at the start of a movie, right? Like it's almost like before we get into it, before we're even right. showing you the first scene, let me just tell you something you need to know. You know, it's the textural at the start of Star Wars. Like it's, I'm okay with a little bit of this. And maybe it's because, you know, I'm a little older and I watched like, you know, <laughs> older movies that I'm nostalgic for it, but I'm okay with it. I kind of, I think it's a, it's a shame that people are, are, are uh, moving away from that. Now, yeah, sure. You don't want to use it as a crutch, um, but you know, I think a little bit's okay. Yeah, I mean, um, I agree with you in general. I don't have anything necessarily against it. I just think that like it can be seen as like a, why are you immediately dropping me into something that, instead of showing me something in a film? Like that's what that's what film is, yeah. right? Um, sure, it's exposition, absolutely, right from the jump. We're just going to tell you something. We're not going to show it to you at all. <laughs> um, you, you know, you, maybe you'll get it later. Um, I, I also want to talk about a moment that um, was is an interesting one for me. So. Um, I have this course on cliches that I'm going to be teaching coming up next year. It's just these like little one-offs, um, and I'll talk about them on my social media and stuff. Um, they're available online, and, and people can sign up. But one of them is about cliches, and it's about literally like improving your prose by eliminating cliches in your prose. And one of the things I talk about in 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 uh, that presentation is about how you can develop your own cliches and put them to use in your fiction. To great effect. One of my examples is "May the odds be ever in your favor," um, and and I was I was sort of reminded of this watching this movie because they say it a bunch of times to where it's clearly an in-world cliche, but it was invented by this you know by Suzanne Collins in this property. Um, that's not something I, I believe anybody would say like said in real life. But now, if you say that you're referencing this because it's such a well-known phrase. There's a few, like winter is coming from Game of Thrones. You could sure. say it's kind of a cliche because they say it so often. Um, there's just certain things that where where it's kind of fun that you can develop them. And then the, the, the weird part of our language is how they will then become real-world cliches that people won't want to say because it's like, oh, that's a cliche. And it's like, no, you're actually referencing a specific property when you say that. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I like that, yeah. <laughs> and, well, and the whole point is that Shakespeare did this a ton. Like so many of modern cliches come from Shakespeare because he did this he just invented them put them in his fiction and they became so iconic that people started saying them all the time yeah it's cool it's like everybody loves referencing you know even back to shakespeare apparently like people yeah. people reference shakespeare all the time and it's just about like being a part of a club or being a part of a group of people who've had like a shared experience talking about this opening one of the one of the big changes um and i'm curious how, how you felt about it um Hamish isn't present during the reaping um in this version in the book, he's there and he takes this dive. He's like drunk. He takes a dive and and, and like all of the sort of uh, tension of the moment dissipates when all of the people of District 12 are doing the like three fingers in the air, sort of rebellious, refusing to applause moment. Um, and Hamish does this. And at first it seems like he's just a drunk buffoon. But then later I, I kind of interpreted it as that was a deliberate act on his part to try and and like divide focus away from the district because um, it's his district, right? Like he's from district 12 and he clearly has uh, an aff affection for them and doesn't want them to be punished. That's all removed here. It does save Woody Harrelson as Hamish for his own separate scene later being introduced. And like, he gets his own moment. 
Um, but w- yeah, what are your thoughts on the re- the the change there and how that how that affected the opening? I think that I missed it. I missed the moment because it is like that cunning thing that we want to establish with Hamish early on. But um, I get why they didn't. I think his, re- his I think his introduction in the in the sh- movie does a bit of that the same yeah. stuff. I think like right away he's being introduced. He seems... Well, it does the drunk. It does the it, it's the train sequence, right? Like he comes out drunk and he doesn't want to help them, and you know, at first, and um, he he seems uninterested in being a mentor. Um, convinced that you're just gonna die. He's like, you know, accept the probability of your death is like his advice to them, and and um, I, I think that's a great scene, I, and I think the tendency was that they wanted to save it, mm-hmm. um, but I just I, I don't know. I, I kind of think it's a shame because of what it does for Hamish as a character, and as much as I like him in the movie, I just would have it would have been cool to have him do that, and then later when you introduce him, you have a little bit of that background now. You've seen him do something, yeah. but maybe you could say it distracts from Effie who's getting her moment too, um, because she's up there like commanding, commanding presence too, you know? Um, So there's, there's pros and cons. I think Haymitch gets more uh, to do in the second one as well, in the second Mm. book and the second movie. Yeah. I I, I missed the scene, but I I guess I'm fine with it. Another criticism, just a little quibble quibble I'll, I'll have is that Katniss's home life with her mother was kind of bizarre to me. Um, later we get the sequence. I know this happens later. We get this like flashback about her father going down the mine shaft and then there's like an explosion, but it's during this like hallucination sequence. Um, if I remember correctly, and that's supposed to provide a little bit of context, but her mom is so cold. And, um, th- this is, this is played by, uh, Paula Malcolmson who like, I've seen her in other stuff to where like, I know she, she has the range to do all sorts of different things, but instead she just doesn't really do hardly anything. She has a very flat affect. Katniss basically tells her what to do. Um, and it does establish Katniss is like she's the real, you know, matriarch of this family in a way. Yeah. Um, but the whole situation at home with, with her mother, um, I don't know if it was fully realized, I guess is what I'm getting at. Like, I, I never really got a felt like I had a good handle on it, at least in the context of the movie. Yeah, it's interesting because I felt like it did what the book set out to do, which is say exactly what you're saying is like, she's kind of not there she's she's not there for Katniss and she's been almost comatose for for all that period of time because she's been dealing with her grief and I think Katniss kind of resents her for that and I think all that came across in the scene I I think I'm bringing some of that from the book though I'm just saying like I don't know how much of that is achieved on camera as much as it's just kind of like a weird relationship with her mom she's like what people are like what's going on with her mom because they don't even show the mind the mind shaft thing what happened to her dad till way later but but I mean you know that her dad's not there. We don't see a, a, yeah. her dad anywhere. So we you can kind of I guess draw context of like something happened. So what did you think of the flaming girl on fire sequence um, and how that was brought to the screen? I thought it was cool. You know I think that it looked visually better than I would have imagined. Uh, I think they pulled it off for the for the movie. I think that the costuming in general was pretty impressive and the hairstyles and the way that. Yeah. The makeup work, all of it, I was pretty struck with, especially they died when a you started... Borzoi pink. I don't know if you saw this. <laughs> What's that? They died a boar a Borzoi pink. It's like those long, shaggy greyhound looking dogs. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody in the Capitol was walking one and it's all of its hair was pink. <laughs> yeah, I mean impressive when you start thinking about the budget and like how much went into a lot of this. And they had to sell it and they I think they did pretty well. Like I said, there are a few like CG moments of of like showing the capital wide, but yeah. like it just didn't feel lived in. And that's how I felt about a lot of the movie, which yeah. I get 
they were up against the wall they needed to do what they could and they establish it well enough to where like you get it and especially if you've read the book you can you can kind of paint the rest of it in your mind the not feeling lived in thing i think you're hitting the nail on the head for me and this is the same problem i have with some star wars films where we we see these wide shots of like massive futuristic looking cities but like often it doesn't feel like a real space it just doesn't feel like a space where people actually live and 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 that's what the capital is supposed to be in some fashion um we have these huge like where, where the chariots are coming in these huge crowds and this huge like arena looking space i don't even know what the space is it's like shadowy um and again it's just like it it, it feels a little fakey to me um and, the and, CG and i never work quite of, buy it and the cg work of like the late to early 2000s to 2010s uh it just doesn't it's at that threshold where like it's almost there but yeah. it just does, doesn't hold up and i was noticing that a lot and maybe that could have been done away with if with more time and more money poured into it but a lot of the cg work in this is is a little uncanny valley to where it doesn't fit the crowds like they look real and then the re the background doesn't so you can just see that difference in something that's real something that's that's cg and it, it just like there's that line that it's like you can buy it and you're like okay it's a movie but I think our C the CG like ten years on is is like getting pretty close to to where you can't tell the difference in some cases. Yeah, I mean, it, but also the artistry behind it has to be on point, right? The, the tool exists, but the 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 people behind it have to be, put the work in and 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 know what to know what to do with right. the tool. And I think that's um, kind of what I. But I'm I'm not like... an expert on CGI or anything, so I don't want to get too far down this road. Yeah. Um, it's just kind of like armchair analysis of, of you know difficult special effects sequences <laughs> totally and that's i think my point with like just amount of time and money they can pour into it i think could have helped it and it just reminds yeah. me of like do do the best you can with what you're given um and it reminds me of some other stuff that we've seen in that in that genre in that time period so i think you ended that plot synopsis with Peta professing his love right and that's on 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 camera with uh cesar flickerman um and I was just thinking about how, like, it's such a smart move to have it play this way. Um, and the fact that it's genuinely true for PETA, yet the idea of him being in love with the other, honestly, more talented and more deadly tribute from his own district is a smart angle for the TV show on top of it it creates such interesting drama because you can see her viewing it as a, as a very calculated play, but on his part, it's like, yeah, it looks like a very calculated play, but it's also true. Um, and it's very difficult for him to convince her that he's not just making it up for the, for the strategy of it all, because honestly, it would be a great strategy. Like if you didn't, if he didn't have any feelings for her, he should play them up and pretend like he does because it would be a smart thing to do. Yeah. And this just gets ramped up to like 11 once the game start too, right? Like you're, you're looking yeah. at them and you're thinking, you know, and this is all credit to Suzanne Collins too, right? Like she, yeah. she came up oh, with this, absolutely. this premise and the way that th these things are playing out. Well, and ultimately, and I was Peter, touching on yeah. this earlier, I think it works a little better in the book because I think it's clearer that Katniss has a lot of like doubt about whether or not any of this is real and then she's more playing it up for the camera because we're in her head and we know how she actually is thinking in these moments. Whereas on screen, I really think viewers could be forgiven for thinking that like a lot of this is genuine from both sides um, and on almost equal amounts. Whereas um, I think they're trying to imply 
you know what's going on in the book which is the much more of like katniss doesn't know about this and maybe she has a little bit of genuine feelings but it's a lot more being played up for the camera well and this kind of gets to what i was talking about with like when you when you're in the games too it's they're going through these things together um and like through they're forging a relationship through that pressure and then they kind of have feelings for each other that might not even be romantic in ways and that gets confusing at that point and so katniss may even feel like she is in love with with him in some ways and uh, or, or at least like the the bond that they share um is like is something mere like getting close to loving him in a, in, a, in a sense i don't know and then and then same for him is like it's reaffirming all of those feelings that he's having so it's it's like the because going into the second one I think, and even at the end of this one, I think that there's a lot going on that lets you see that like both they're not on the same page and like, will they ever be? Is this a will they, won't they scenario, which I think the genre is known for, but uh, who, I I think it's probably, you're going to see some flip-flopping too. Like maybe sometimes people, somebody loves someone and then then it's too late and this person's moved on and that kind of thing. The love for Gail is still there. I guess it's kind of, I, I feel like I'm trying to make kind of a subtle point, but like, it just seems to me like moviegoers are set up to be more frustrated with Katniss for the way she doesn't honor the feelings that we all saw during the Hunger Games, you know, the show, whatever, with PETA by then being on the fence about it afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Right. And being like, oh, you really played that up for the camera. Like that element is underserved a little bit to me in the movie to where when she all of a sudden is behaving that way, I think the audience is largely just frustrated with her. And like, you know, like, what are you doing? Whereas in the book, I I felt like Suzanne Collins did a really good job of of consistently showing her um, having doubts about whether or not Peter was was being truthful in the way he was behaving. And then also like saying i'm gonna really play this up specifically for the strategic reason i think audiences are also frustrated with katniss in the book at the end because it is if it's it's whether or not you as the reader have bought into Peta as but that's mostly because i feel bad for Peta. yeah that's like what i, I was understand say, is if you her bought position. into Peta as a character and you like yeah. the you want that relationship to continue or, or to yeah. start well and another element that plays into it is i don't know that the the um benefit of the audience is as clear in the movie I think there are moviegoers who could be forgiven for thinking that when she gets sent medication and it says, apply liberally, stay alive, H, from Hamish, right? And it comes down in that little parachute, that that's just something Hamish sent to her. Like, we've talked about sponsors, but I don't know that the connection has been made clear that this was an expensive thing that a person decided to pay for and got sent to Hamish. And then he, the only reason he's the one who's sending it to her is because he has the control of when to send certain paid for gifts. Right. But it's not like it's something he just decided to give her because he saw she needed it. And he could just do that if he wanted to. And I think if you're not paying really close attention, you, you might not get that. And so the whole element of like playing to sponsors so that you could get gifts, if you don't quite understand that that's how these gifts are arriving, um, that this isn't just something Hamish is choosing to do. Because the other thing later with the whole, like, you call that a kiss, like, that just almost seems like Hamish is being manipulative for no r- real reason. Um, and maybe he's trying to make the, like, it more of appealing overall to, like, the greater society. And, like, he's trying to protect them in that sense of, like, make them more likable. But there's not that direct, like, no, no, he's trying to get them 
sponsors so that they can get more little gifts. It would have it would have brought it full circle too if they didn't cut district I think eleven giving Katniss a gift after the Rue death thing. It would have come all first. It would have really yes. made sense. I, to and I missed that. that. I, I yeah. did miss that moment. So at the start of the games, Katniss grabs supplies scattered around the cornucopia before fleeing into the surrounding forests, narrowly escaping death. She tries to distance herself from other tributes, but Seneca Crane, the head game maker, triggers a forest fire to drive her towards them. She runs into the careers composed of District 1's tributes Marvel and Glimmer and District 2's tributes Cato and Clove and flees up a tree. Peta, who has seemingly allied with them, suggests they wait her out. The following morning, Rue, District 11's young female tribute, signals Katniss towards a nest of tracker jackers. Katniss cuts the nest to fall onto the career sleeping below. Glimmer dies, but the others manage to escape. Katniss retrieves Glimmer's bow, but falls ill from being stung several times. Peter returns and urges her to flee before fleeing himself. Rue helps Katniss recover, and the two become friends and allies. Katniss destroys a stockpile of the career's supplies by detonating the mines guarding it while Rue provides a distraction. Later, Katniss finds and rescues Rue from a trap set by the careers. Marvel appears and fatally impales Rue with his spear, just as Katniss shoots him dead. She comforts Rue by singing, and after she dies, adorns her body with flowers, a gesture that incites a riot in District 11. Pan Am President Coriolanus Snow warns Crane he is displeased about the unrest, stating the game's purpose is to instill hope to prevent future uprisings. Yeah, what an anus. <laughs> Old Corley- yep. Corleanus. Corleanus. <laughs> um, yeah, so we've touched on a lot of this, so we don't have to rehash it, but um, one thing that stands out for me in there is the death by wasps. Like, it's in the book, but holy shit, is that horrific. Um, I can think a few ways that are would be worse than going out by being stung to death by wasps. That looked fucking horrific. That would be um, terrible because you're yeah. also like, you think about it's just all swelling and then I think you would probably it would find choke. it difficult to breathe and yep. choke and yeah. I think that's probably how you die. Maybe terrible. you go into some sort of anaphylactic shock. Yeah. I don't know if that makes your heart stop or whatever, but to me it seems like your air, your your windpipe closes and you're just in excruciating pain. Yeah. Uh, Glimmer was, was definitely pretty horrible, but damn, that's a bad way to go. Um, Pretty horrific, and there—that's the thing. At times, there's some pretty horrifying violence. Um, the the bloodbath of the cornucopia. I thought this was a sequence you had to nail to make this movie work, and they they do nail it. Um, I think the 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 way this plays out makes a lot of sense. The idea that I the love careers... the silence as they start and run to, after as the, as the timer hits zero and they all start running. The silence there, yeah, I think really speaks volumes to like what's happening, how horrific it is, and how like the the like trauma that's being instilled in all these people right away and yeah. the danger of it and it makes sense to me that the careers who've been training for this moment right and they've been going through all this work like they this is their moment and like they're of course going to go for the cornucopia and it's something Hamish said it might be in the book too but where he says like that's not your game like i think he's aware that like everybody's got a different strategy for winning this thing and it makes sense that the careers are like somebody's going to get all these all these supplies we're the most equipped for this yeah so we're going to go for it and like i've been training like they've probably been practicing these kind of scenarios you know what i mean so they kind of know how it's going to play out to some to some extent these like brawls like this yeah yeah so you so of course you know hamish's advice to katniss to not go there is absolutely the right advice like yeah because if you're screwed if like you're just some random person who's never been in a moment like this, never had any practice, and you're going to try and run in there like they're ready for you. Um, yeah. And we see that play out where where I think like 12 
of the participants die immediately. Yeah, like right away, maybe even 13. And yeah. um, this this start, there's a couple things that I think about with the careers. So they train specifically to get all the supplies and be ready with all of them. Um, and they're well fed, they're well trained, all this other stuff. And it makes me think about like when, I, I guess I didn't put it into context of when Katniss destroys the supplies later, how detrimental that is to those specific people because they're not used to the hardships of like not having the food not having the yeah. supplies they're, they're so reliant on it in a way that like Katniss just isn't because we're so far in her perspective um I guess I, I was kind of far from reach that this made me make those connections and then also um Caitlin my fiance mentioned uh is this like is Hunger Games partly uh to be credited for the rise of battle royale video games I think so, honestly. But, I mean, and the Battle Royale film, and obviously that we touched yes. on the controversy last yeah. week. So if you want to hear us talk about Battle Royale, check out, we, we went into kind of a deep thing about that last week. So we can't rehash it here. But yeah, I, I honestly think both of those were uh, foundational for Battle Royale as a, as a game type ex exploding in popularity. And it's crazy to think because of like how Fortnite makes just billions of dollars off of selling you know, skins and all this other stuff you know what's kind of crazy there's no i don't think there's like a hunger games video game there should have been right if they had just got been ahead of the curve they could have made a yeah. hunger games battle royale and been I wonder been something to do Fortnite. with suzanne collins not wanting that because it does feel a little bit gross true I, yeah. you know i would say to, to and, and that's something so, else we addressed last week which is the yeah. idea of like the spectacle being the thing to draw audiences in and kind of sometimes i feel like people have blinders on for some of the commentary being made of like yeah. it's kind of about taking down this oppressive regime not the, yeah. the spectacle we're not supposed games. to think this is super fun and great <laughs> it's yeah. supposed to be horrific um now i want to i want to talk a little bit more about the careers because i find them really interesting and the way suzanne collins handles them interesting and they are the one piece of this puzzle that really doesn't get much sympathy and doesn't get much like um, rounded out characterization. They're villainous throughout. They are like blatantly villainous. They seem bloodthirsty and demented and sociopathic. Now, maybe you could say that like that is somehow uh like manifested and like uh manufactured in this in this process and that those are the people who end up getting it maybe there's a volunteer process for that i don't know but my assumption is they're still being chosen by lottery i think they i think they say they volunteer at, at they they train to 18 and then every year somebody volunteers when they're like the peak physical shape and they're ready to go kind of thing yeah that's in the book but it's just interesting to me because there is there's still a district that is under some level of oppression i would think yeah unless these early like these districts one and two are like the people who are living in the capital but i wasn't clear about that i assumed that the people who are in the capital are not participating in the games they're no, only they're viewers of it i think this is pulling from knowledge from another book but i believe they were they they do their job is so tightly connected to the, the capital that they're like they're given preferential treatment without that actually being a thing like they still have yeah. to have their tributes that all that other stuff but their jobs whatever i forget what they develop whatever they're they're in charge of like yeah. i think the capital like likes them and favors them and that kind of stuff and maybe illegally gives them better food or treatment in some way do they um, i wonder if they side with the capital more when the when these when the war started actually breaking out yeah because like I, it just seemed to me like the fact that these are still children who have been, even if they've been sort of manipulated in this situation, there's very little 
we get that says like this is actually pretty horrific for them too they're out here dying yeah um and well, it, and and for for the same sort of fucked up reasons that everybody else is dying one of the greatest moments i think and this it's not necessarily a change as much as it's just well adapted is the end when Cato is there and he's real he's like basically been torn apart and he, he knows he's gonna die but he has this moment where he can kill Peta. And he says, like, I guess I should have known I was always dead or something like that. I was always yeah. dead. And like, I think that when these that people the are dying where they give him something. Yeah. And I think when, his, when these yeah. when they're dying, they realize like how they're being manipulated, how small this role is right. in, in the grand scheme. And all of that comes and, and, like and I don't, at the how wrong did time. you read that moment. Like, what does he mean by I was always going to die? Do you think he is saying that he believes that this was scripted in some way? Like that they no, I think were, it, were were chosen to be the victors and that he was chosen to die? I think one of two things. I think either he, they they underestimated Katniss and she really was just like this much of a threat and he was always going to die because she was always going to win. Not that it was scripted in that way, just that she had the skills to survive. Or he just means like whether he won or not, it doesn't matter. Um, he was always mm. like a pawn in their game. See, I, I think I took it more as like a almost like a complaining about the you know like complaining about the refs. Yeah, you know, like uh, th they were they were they were helping you. They were sending you medicine. Like you were picked to be the victor by the audience and sort of uh, oh, sort okay. of working the refs a little bit. Like sure, they didn't like me, so that's why I'm losing. Well, and you could argue too that like Hamish convincing Seneca Crane to change the rules of the game. Yeah. Uh, to where like the tributes could go together, could work together. And I think that's after his partner is gone, right? Yeah, no, that's great. And that opens up another whole thing I wanted to bring up. The main difference between book and film for me when it comes to the games themselves is the limited POV of Katniss in the book makes it so everything that's going on outside of it, she's guessing at what's going on. She's guessing why they're making these changes. The gamekeepers we hear about, we hear about the sponsors. All of this she's interpreting, but we're locked in her perspective. So we only see the, the end result of these actions. And so there, it leaves enough room for us to fill in a lot of details. And like my imagination is going wild, figuring out like how these things come to be, why they're making certain decisions. In the movie, we are shown all of this. We are shown the conversation between Haymitch and uh, Seneca Crane where he convinces him to do this. But then we see the follow-up conversation with Crane and Snow, where Snow tells him to be careful and like all this stuff. We see that all the like sort of politics, we see the inside of the gamekeeper's room where they're all literally manifesting all of this stuff. Whereas they're just like vengeful gods kind of in the book because she's just trying to like project what they're doing, but like, we don't know why they're doing the things they're doing. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's just a big difference in perspective. And what we can actually see playing out and it changes a little bit of the feel of the games to me like on a fundamental level because we're seeing both sides of it rather than being in the games with katniss and that being our only perspective it's interesting to think of a version of this film where we do stay that close perspective to katniss um i think it would even feel even less um fleshed out of a world just because like when, when we see that stuff it's giving us context yeah that maybe I I want to be clear. I'm not saying that I think it should have been that way. Yeah. It but just you're just saying it's a big difference. The story. Yeah. Yeah. It changes the story. I see why they did it. And honestly, I think you probably need to um, that. And that, that that's probably the right decision. But it fundamentally changes the way the games feel to me. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. And I agree. I think the stuff with Rue works just as well. And as it did in the book for me, um, 
it's heartbreaking the stuff that ha the way yeah. that it happens seeing a little girl and that girl is like perfectly cast as rue the one th yeah i agree with all of that i think that works it works well it's up until the point we already touched on a little bit but the change to have instead of an act of rebellion in a sense by 11 uh, district 11 honoring her death i think they send they send bread is that what's in the book? I'm uh, trying to remember. They send a, like a gift of some yeah. kind. I want to say it's like bread or something as like a thank you. But again, this is Katniss. We're in Katniss's perspective. So she's just interpreting what's happening. And instead here, we see an actual riot break out in District 11, and then it gets sort of quashed. I don't know. I, I, I guess it broadens it out in the idea of there being, it being on like a, a you know, a razor's edge of, of rebellion and how... Maybe this is starting something. I think, I, I don't know. I, I, I think I prefer the book's version as like a more of a symbolic re rebellion moment than, than we're just seeing this kind of, this, this yeah. riot that gets, then gets quashed. I don't know. So the District 11 sending a gift to Katniss is a big deal too, because it's not even necessarily rebellion as much as it's seeing the districts coming together in a way yeah. that they normally wouldn't. Um, and that's like maybe the beginning of of a connection that that could that could build into something like that. I didn't mind seeing the riots though in the movie, because I think that for the for the film going audience to make it clear how close they are to to like uh, this powder keg is is ready to to explode. Um, it worked for me, and I do think like seeing a young girl die like this could definitely be the spark that that yeah. starts something like that. And, and to be fair, you could do both. And I, and I guess that's where I'm ultimately at. Like, yeah, I, I think there was a good purpose for having the riot, um, but you could have had the riot break out after some sort of explanation of this this gift getting sent. Okay, so Hamish persuades Crane to change the rules, allowing for two victors if they are from the same district, suggesting it would appease the public. Katniss finds Peta severely injured, and they take shelter in a cave together. Despite Peta's protests, Katniss leaves to get medicine. She is ambushed and overpowered by Clove, who gloats about Rue's death before preparing to attack. Thresh, District 11's male tribute, overhears this and intervenes, killing Clove. He spares Katniss in memory of Rue. Katniss returns to the cave with the medicine, tending to Peta's wounds overnight. While out hunting for food, Katniss hears a cannon blast signaling a death. She rushes to Peta, who has unwittingly collected deadly nightlock berries. They find Foxface's body, District 5's female tribute, poisoned by the berries she had gathered while watching Peta. As the games draw to a close, Crane unleashes genetically modified beasts that kill Thresh and force Katniss, Peta, and Kato, the final tributes, to climb onto the cornucopia's roof. Kato grabs Peta in a headlock, using him as a human shield against Katniss's arrow. Katniss shoots Kato's hand, allowing Peta to throw him into the beast below. Suddenly, Crane revokes the rule change permitting two victors. Peta implores Katniss to shoot him, but she convinces him to consume Nightlock berries with her. Just as they are about to eat the berries, Crane declares them co-victors. After the games, Hamish warns Katniss of the enemies she has made through her rebellious acts. Snow orders for Crane to be locked in a room with a bowl of Nightlock berries before contemplating his next course of action. I got to talk about my favorite part of the movie. It's hilarious to me. It's it's also effective and it does work. I just still think it's just always going to be funny to me. And that's when Peta is painted into the mud <laughs> and he opens his eyes and reaches out and his head comes out. Yeah, it's it always gets a laugh out of me. And I and like, again, it's just a funny looking moment. I, I don't yeah. know how else to describe it. Uh, just seeing a person covered in like mud, mud and like in that way. But yeah. it does work as effective camouflage. Like, I wouldn't have seen it. Yeah, I don't know how it looks so good, but I'm assuming there's some sort of feature tech 
for like being able to quickly apply camouflage it looks no that it's just just compelling. baking if you know how to <laughs> decorate he's, a cake, iced a, he's iced a cupcake before <laughs> yeah if you know how to do that you can hide yourself in camouflage everybody knows this <laughs> yeah um it's yeah it's funny i agree um i want to talk about some of the differences here so i think the romance we've already touched on a lot of like the perspectives of it and what's going on with with it but also there's less heat here i think um we only see a couple of small kisses there's not really a lot of like sparks between them a lot of it is left to be sort of implied they're snuggling and, and what have you but in the book there was a lot more like makeouts it seemed like to me yeah. in that cave there's a um, moment and, where she has yeah. to like pull his take his pants off or something right or she she doesn't want to take it something like that in maybe <laughs> yeah yeah but it it is also like i and even in the book i remember thinking like Man, there's there's nothing like a applying a salve to a, a infected wound on a feverish individual to get me excited. <laughs> you know, like it's really weird that this is the romantic moment because like Peta, you know, would be would be feeling like death, and yeah. then yeah, the idea of like you know treating a wound is is about as opposite from sexy as you can get. So, I think he's just one of the um, horniest individuals to walk the planet, and so he's like say, even through <laughs> the, the pain. counter to that is they are like they are what like 16, 17 year olds. Sure. So like you know maybe it just over. He's like I don't care. He's, <laughs> I'm pretty sure it doesn't. In, in the book, I think they say something about how like he ended up losing the leg, right? And they had to go with like a, a robotic leg. Oh yeah, or you're like right. That. Yeah, he has a robotic leg in the book. They don't do that. Um, interestingly. Yeah, that's that is a big difference. Because it was like um, that's so, showing yeah. like how dire his his injuries were in the book. Right, is like that that he ended up losing his leg. Um, so like for him to be, you know, still romantically involved with Katniss while he's like that's, got a leg that a it, it, you know. <laughs> yeah, he's like, nah, let's make out. <laughs> right, that's how that's how um, strong his feelings are, I guess. Yeah, and then we get the dogs being released. Um, I felt like that moment. First off, it's darker in the book because in the book, they're like mutants that are blended in some way we don't understand with those who have fallen so far in the games. Yeah, they have their they have their eyes. I think they have like human eyes yes. and they have their numbers It's like an like annihilation moment or something. It's like fucking or like uh, what's that uh, for Full Metal Alchemist or something. I, you know, I don't exactly, spoil yeah. that. But like Spoilers these are that, some yeah. sort of weird fucking human like hybrid chimeras. Yeah. chimeras and they're that's fucking frightening and dark and um these were just kind of like mutant dogs uh, unclear and then like another moment of, of things not being clear to me were they were they like making them pop into existence because it sure seemed like it couldn't believe that i was like R they have or is that that yeah that magic doesn't make sense summoning abilities that no. are like well beyond any science i would have liked to see imagine. a scene of them coming out of a tube or something like that yeah. would make sense like they're in a tube underground they shoot them up just like they do the, the tributes and now they're up there instead they like pop into existence it seems like which doesn't make any sense yeah so, and they just yeah. look like muscle dogs they're like big muscle dogs yeah they, they they it was weird and then also like uh unclear as to like what they were doing at times it really seemed like the gamekeepers were just trying to kill them um whereas it was i, I don't know Katniss at least was interpreting it more to like controlling their movements and forcing them into certain zones, forcing them to confront each other. Um, so it was a little more clear for me in the book. <laughs> so the, the, what would the purpose of the gamekeepers and what they were trying to do um, here just seemed like random dogs. They loosed on them yeah. and like that kills Thresh, which like how fucking pissed would you be if you were from Thresh's like district and he did so well and he made it all the way to the end and all of a sudden the gamekeepers are just like ah oh, we'll leave some dogs on him fuck him well I, I was thinking about this when when katniss was like such a big threat in the games and everybody's going for her 
and like they just start chucking fireballs at her i'm like what if one of these takes her out like that's so unfair and i know that like that's part of the game is that they are unfair but that's ridiculous like just to target people with fireballs that's when you get riots man get yeah. some get people who actually enjoy something and get them pissed off <laughs> you get a riot yeah <laughs> you got to be careful with that um they also they also shorten kato's death quite a bit um in the in the book he was wearing some sort of like magic armor not magic it was a high tech armor and plus it was one, protecting plus him. one, yeah. you know, light armor of some kind. Exactly. He was immune to a lot of the hits. And then, like, when he gets knocked down into the into the dogs, like, he he's getting killed for, like, an hour or something, right? It takes a long time. Um, he's just down there dying for a long fucking time. It, you know, another very horrific death um, that is softened a little bit for the, for the movie. Yeah, this kind of brings us to the end. I think yeah. it, Romeo like, and Juliet liked... moment. Yeah, I like that they did the, this again. I think it works just as well. Yeah. I like the Smart. moment of of uh, Crane, like kind of grab, like you hear like the microphone, like like give that feedback, and he's like trying to grab it quickly of him saying like, "Wait, wait, wait <laughs> yeah, stop. don't do that." Uh, like that's showing like that the capital is like losing control in some ways, and they're not yeah. as organized and put together as they would have you believe. Um, and then yeah, the moment where that's they all right of the, the book. So, so yeah. credit to Suzanne Collins. And and I like that they leave the berries there. I, I don't think that that's from the book. The the putting him Seneca. Well, no, we don't we don't, see we, we don't see anything outside of Katniss's perspective. So, right. so putting yeah. him in the room with the nightlock bulls is as a, a symbol of being like, this is you fucked us. Now you have to die this way. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. I'm gonna have to watch the second movie to find out if he actually died. We don't see him again after that. So I kind I'm, of assumed he did. I think he's dead. Yeah. Interesting, man. And and, and the Romeo and Juliet moment at the end, I think it's it's uh, a smart way. It it does it does so many things, right? It's working on multiple levels, which is a sign of great writing to me. And that it's 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 sparking rebellion. It's showing that they are staying true to themselves. It's it's a fuck you to the capital. It's also furthering the romance between these two characters because, of course, Romeo and Juliet are tragic romantic teens who die. Um, you know, spoiler for Shakespeare. <laughs> and um, to have this moment where they are potentially going to do the same thing, it just makes a ton of sense. I, I think all, all that's left to do is to choose book or movie and wrap this thing up. What do you think? Let's do it. Yeah. Um, I guess I'll start. I'm okay. pretty undecided about this. I think that for this case, for the purposes of the podcast, I think I'm going to take the movie here. And I think it's just because like it launches this mega franchise which I again I don't remember the ending of very much, and I think at like nearing the end it got weird with the part one part two thing, and I don't remember how people feel about that. That the podcast wouldn't exist without adaptations, right? And I think seeing mega bestsellers get adapted is something that brings people into adaptations in the first place. This is what people are interested in. These are the first adaptations you'll see are these big, kind of more broad ones, especially and and especially for that demographic that they're targeting. Like these, this might be some of the first adaptations that some of these younger audiences are seeing and then they're like I want to read the book so I have better context and I just like the idea of of uh seeing like a Jennifer Lawrence uh Woody Harrelson uh Donald Sutherland like all of these all these big name actors come together and and take something like this really seriously and the costuming the the way that they were able to like evoke the capital in ways and then also show like some of the brutality that you wouldn't expect to have made it into a PG-13 cut um it's just, you know, obviously all credit to Suzanne Collins, but I'm going to take the movie here just because I think that it puts it into a package that's very digestible for anyone, even more uh, accessible than than a really short novel. So I, I like that you have sort of, you know, multiple layers to your reasoning there, including a meta one about the nature of adaptations in this podcast. Um, so I'll come at mine from the same way. I'm going to choose the book. 
Um, I, I've touched on several reasons here why I thought the interiority of Katniss, the limited perspective, I think works really well in the book. Um, it lets me fill in a lot of the details in a way that was always going to probably be better than, than an adaptation could pull off. Um, and that's the reason that I think a lot of people tend to say that the book was better when you ask them about adaptations. Like I talk to people about adaptations outside of the podcast all the time because I mentioned I do a podcast about adaptations. The number one response I get is, oh, yeah, the, the book's always better. Like it, that, that's, that's like the accepted knowledge. And the reason I think it's accepted is because people provide all these like rich world building and thoughts and perspectives and, you know, they have no budget for their design. So anything can look as good as they want it to in their imagination. Um, and this is, a, a, I think, a, a, on a meta level, a, just a clear example to me of this was a solid adaptation and it did everything you mentioned. But also, I think the fans of the book are probably the kind of people who are going to stick by the book and say uh, this was better because yeah. um, you can read this book and really imagine something spectacular that um, maybe isn't quite delivered on here, uh, even though I do I do recognize that it's a, a solid one and I did enjoy it. Um, and I don't even know if that was true previously, because I, I, I think I really got caught up in the spectacle of it and the, the performances. But yeah, I think this time around, I've come I've come back to the book being better. Um, so that's where I'll weigh. I think it's obviously also appropriate for the podcast to have us do both, yeah. both sides of it here. <laughs> and I like what you brought up there with the, the idea of like the the that audience is going to be very passionate. The people who read the book first, especially. Yeah. Um, but I, I did too, just to add to my point, think about thinking about like the zeitgeist and the way that like the, you know, made the odds be ever in your favor. The, the, uh, um, you know, Katniss Everdeen, the girl on fire, the Stanley yeah. Tucci, like famous line and the Effie Trinket stuff, like just seeing her become a meme like she has and what she means to like the, the overall zeitgeist and how it's like, it's in the culture. It's in the, you know, the everyone's consciousness at this point. Um, so I guess I guess credit to to the movie for that as well for being iconic yeah. I would say at this point yeah great project this one was a lot of fun um, if you enjoyed us covering it and you want to hear us cover more stuff like it in the future let us know in the form of a rating interview let us know that you listen to this episode uh, we'd love to hear from you in that way on whatever platform you chose to listen on and if you're on YouTube give the video a like make sure to subscribe and you'll be notified whenever we have new things coming out and be sure to connect with us on all other social media it's we're on Facebook Twitter Instagram follow us on any of that. We would love to interact on there. And if you would like to support us in another way, we have a Patreon. And on that Patreon right now, we have a poll. If you're uh, listening to this on the 30th, then you can still have time to join up to Patreon and cast your vote. Um, it's down to four final projects. It is uh, My Best Friend's Exorcism, Psycho, To Kill a Mockingbird, or Crazy Rich Asians. One of those four projects is going to be our next project and right now we don't know i think it's still it's still like a dead heat so great time to get onto our patreon and cast your vote we also have bonus content on there so keep an eye out for that and we'd love to have you and thank you to ross bugden for the use of our intro and outro music all right that's gonna be it for the hunger games uh this was a fun one i i, I can't tell you what our next project's gonna be as i mentioned it's still it's still up in the air but we're approaching christmas time so we'll be choosing you know, a Christmas project uh, to, to cap off the year. Oh, and then we'll be doing our last looks, which is our, our true final episode of the year where we take a look back at everything we covered. So, you know, stay tuned for that. And uh, until next time, keep adapting. Keep adapting.